I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast way back in 2002. The occasion was the dedication of the Hedberg Library on the campus of Carthage College. During that exciting weekend, I was able to record an interview within the walls of Hedberg Library with James Billington, who at the time was the Librarian of Congress, that is, the Director of the Library of Congress. He became our country's 13th Librarian of Congress in 1987, and he held that post until 2015. During that time, uh, the Library of Congress more than doubled its traditional analog holdings, but uh, James Billington also helped lead the Library of Congress into the digital age. He also launched some very important uh, protective measures to extend the life of many of the library's most precious holdings. Before becoming Librarian of Congress, James Billington taught at both Harvard and Princeton, and he ended up serving 42 years as CEO of four different federal cultural institutions. Here is my conversation with James Billington, Librarian of Congress, speaking to him on the campus of Carthage College back in 2002. This is Dr. James Billington, Librarian of Congress, uh, on the campus of Carthage College uh, to help dedicate the Hedberg Library. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, Dr. Billington, is the experience of walking into a brand new library like this. What are the impressions as you look around you, the, the, the choices that have been made? I don't mean so much what, what you've seen here at Hedberg, but just in general, uh, the business of, of yeah. building new libraries. Well, um, I think I kind of instinctively look for, for two or three things. Um, I look for the, um, the relationship of where the readers are going to sit to the books. I mean, are they physically in the proximity of books somehow? That's very important. Secondly, I look for the light. Where does the light come from? Is there natural light? Um, is there, um, mainly because my own eyesight's failing and I need lots of light, but uh, also because, I mean, after the books, it's, it, uh, the natural light is a big thing. The great new library, Bibliothèque Nationale de France, which has just been built, the biggest libra single library building in the world, also the most expensive building ever built on planet Earth, is, is entirely the readers are underground. The books are in glass towers getting baked by the sun, which they shouldn't be. <laughs> and the readers are all underground in artificial light. The readers should have been in those glass towers. First of all, it's good for retinal fatigue. If you're reading intensively, you need to look out. You need to have some vista. You need to, if you just sit there, it's going to ruin your eye. So those are those two things. Then the third thing I look for is, um, are there computers and are they, how are they configured in relationship to the readers and the books? Because I'm a, uh, I don't, I'm not a great lover of computers, but uh, they are the new communications revolution. Are they integrated into libraries? And by and large, they are. I mean, the li new libraries are very good about this. And libraries in America are usually give me a great lift because there is, there's usually those three things. People physically in the presence of books have the capacity to, to use natural light and see out and, and kind of so that they're not 
totally confined, that they get some of the benefit of the great glass revolution in architecture? And thirdly, are they equipped so that they can integrate the new technology into the old books? Because having a new, one of the things you worry about is people um, aren't going to libraries anymore because they think they can get everything they want on a computer. So you want the computers there. Are they available? Are they convenient? Is there somebody to help mediate them? And are they there? So those are the kind of things I look for. What I, um, what I look for with apprehension is, is this all a gee whiz construction? Is it designed, so, is it a big ego parade for some architect and for some gullible group of legislators or trustees who just wanted to buy an architect's reputation uh, and didn't really want to have a functioning library that was built uh, for, for people and, and um, had some kind of joyous integration with the outside as well as with the books. How has the Library of Congress evolved over the 15 years that you have headed it? Well, I said when I was sworn in, I'd been running an institution, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, which really brought scholars to use the Library of Congress from all over the world. And so I was pretty familiar with the library as a functioning institution. And I said when I was sworn in um, that there were two jobs ahead. One was to go out more broadly, and the other was to go in more deeply. And that's what we've tried, pretty well tried to do. We go out more broadly by using the net, and we, we've, uh, you know, got nearly eight million pieces of American history and culture on the net, congressional information with the Thomas system. Uh, we've got uh, now, we have a national digital library, and we're building a global gateway now with joint projects with the national libraries of Russia, Spain, Brazil. Uh, and we'll hope to have a few more. So that's going out more broadly, using the new technology to get the most important things, particularly the special collections that nobody used. We're not just digitizing books. Books are available everywhere. We have a wonderful library system in this country. People can get books, uh, and they can get books that we have that they don't have through inter free through interlibrary loan. But the most important thing is using the internet to, to reach people in and beyond other libraries so that they can get so that the Library of Congress is not just a thing for people who can get to Washington. We can get things, and also, and also that it goes for a new audience. See, we're, we're only an audience for people over 18, basically. Hmm. But we've now created a website, set of websites, that are designed educationally for K through 12, and right into the fourth grade. So that's out more broadly. I think we've done that. We got uh, 1.8 billion hits electronic transactions last year. So we're getting out more broadly. In more deeply is more uh, difficult, challenging task. But that we're doing with a new center. We've set up now eight chairs to bring in great thinkers, the, the, really the great thinkers of the world. People who don't necessarily come to Washington because they're so wrapped up in their deep scholarship. But we, uh, the, this country was built by people who were really great scholars in their day. I mean, Jefferson, Madison, Franklin, you, you, you talk about these kinds of people. You're talking about very learned people who, um, uh, and the interaction between the world of affairs and the world of ideas was what put this country together, enabled us to create the idea of self-government, enabled us to create a document in the Constitution, the 18th century, that's still viable in the 21st century, uh, and so forth. So I think that's important to get the world of scholarship to get the world of scholarship at its very best. 
and also that it's more integrating because the tendency in academia is to be narrowly specialized and even in the policy think tanks in Washington is they like to disaggregate problems so they're always taking them apart and nobody's putting things back together again. I'm a great fan of what they call synthetic history where you put things together where you try to try to create an intelligible narrative out of a welder of facts. Um, we just had this book festival and we had, uh, you know, we it was ended up with uh, David McCullough's thing. He's been very much, we've been very much involved with him and he did his thing on the Adams first really in the library and um, first presentation in Washington. And that kind of thinking where you, you are putting things together rather than just taking them apart is something that needs to be done in Washington. The intellectual, the, the level of intelligence is very high, but the, the generation of wisdom and knowledge out of reading across disciplines, across languages and cultures, that's possible in the Library of Congress. Two-thirds of our books aren't even in English. We're the largest Spanish language library in the world, largest Arabic language library in the world. You've got to get people who are going to use languages, use different disciplines, use different formats. We have this tremendous audiovisual uh, library, which people really aren't using for deep intellectual thinking. So getting it in more deeply so this stuff is used and is that we get not just information but knowledge and wisdom distilled out of it for the sake of our kind of civilization. And, um, we have immense power, but we're living in a world where increasingly we're going to have to live by our wits rather than by our weapons. And we just don't have the knowledge of the world. We don't have the uh, we don't have the knowledge that you could get out of the information we have. And so, going in more deeply, to use this immense resource for constructive and imaginative purposes is, I think, my big remaining task in whatever years I have left to to work at this to get in more deeply. And we're working on it. We're having bringing two types of people that we're raising money to bring them. One is very senior people and the other is very junior people. Hmm. Everything in between is in the academic bureaucratized world of academia with all the little stages of progression and all the little guild exercises you have to perform to get yourself promoted <clears throat> and so forth. But where is the, you know, Eliot once said, you know, where is the knowledge we've lost in information? Where is the wisdom we've lost in knowledge? Or, or I guess the other way around, where is the... But I mean, in other words, and we're now, in the, we call it, all, call it the information society, but we've got to have, and it's very important in the city of power to have the life of the mind celebrated, uh, respected in its own right. And we have one, two great assets. We have these enormous collections. And then we have the most beautiful interior space in Washington, maybe in America, in the Jefferson Building, the Library of Congress. If you've never been there, it's inspirational space, it's incredible building, it's a great tribute to the same remarkable man, um, uh, um, uh, Justin Morrill, the senator who created the Morrill Act that, that spread higher learning. Um, throughout America, created the land-grant college system in the 19th century, and he built that building, got the money through Congress. So we have a beautiful place right opposite the Capitol, right at the heart of Washington, that is inspirational in its environment, in its uh, beauty. Um, 
we've had to close the stacks, unfortunately, but I brought a lot of books out, and we now have reading rooms for every continent of the world, as well as the main general reading room. And we've, but we've got to populate that. And we've got, because we've got all this stuff, and we have a very lazy, decadent culture. <laughs> we have lazy people, uh, lazy academics, including people, who, once they get tenure, they stop writing and just repeat the same lectures. Often, I know, I used to do it myself. So, to some degree, <laughs> but you've got to uh, you've got to create a system in which um, the uh, there is some coherence in all of this. And there's been a tendency. It's not so much that this problem that people talk about about political correctness in the universities, although that can be a big problem, particularly in the elite universities, the so-called media foundation university complex. Um, but even more, there's methodological narrowness. People sort of retreated from the heavy ideological thing of the 60s. It may be coming back, I don't know. But, um, but they're, they're, they tend to be very narrow methodologically, and they don't produce it. You see that because as this principal support arm of the Congress, the intellectual level of the Congress has risen tremendously in the 30 years I've been in Washington. They are much brighter. There are many more graduate degrees. There are all kinds of numbers of people. Uh, who studied abroad. I mean, you have Senator Feingold here who's, who's at Oxford. I mean, when I, there were, I think there were as many as 10 senators who studied abroad, did graduate work abroad, for instance. When I went to Washington, there was only one Bill Fulbright. Mm -hmm. And now, I mean, that's only one statistic. There are many more graduate degrees. But there isn't the constant exposure. It's such a political town, so heavy with lobbyists and advocacy-oriented people, which is fine. I mean, that's a, the competition of interests and voices is, is healthy for a democracy. But the real world of scholarship, there is no mega university, there's no Columbia or University of Chicago or Berkeley in Washington. And there's a need for exposure of the politicians to the best, to the extraordinarily rich intellectual life that this country has generated. Do you think the Library of Congress serves that function? Well, I think there are a lot of places. I mean, there's very good think tanks, but they're all public policy oriented. And um, the top academia, the really big thinkers, don't have a place where they can come and stay. Hotels, there aren't inexpensive hotels in Washington. Uh, one of my hopes is that we can somehow get a place like they have in Paris and Berlin and other places, uh, inexpensive so the scholars can come. But one reason we're, we're bringing in a lot of very young people, just postdoctoral fellows and even people doing their doctorate, as well as these very senior people, is so that they can discover the riches of Washington. The Library of Congress, as I say, is the world's largest supply of practically everything, but there are other resources in Washington too. I mean, there's a lot of things in the Smithsonian, there are a lot of things in government, libraries and archives, the Coast and Geodetic Survey, Washington and the National Archives, of course, the official record of the U.S. government. So there is an immense, there is more information, raw information for serious scholarship in Washington than any other city in the world. And there's a higher percentage of PhDs in Washington than in any urban area in the world. Uh, so you've got, a, you've got the potential for much richer intellectual life than the, in its own right. And it's important for the, pol for the politicians to have access not just to the material in the Library of Congress and to the public policy research, which on an objective basis the Congressional Research Service does, part of the Library of Congress. But it's important for them to s have contact with the wisdom. I mean, take Islam. We brought over a guy named Muhammad Arkun 
from the University of uh, Paris, or Sorbonne, where he's been the professor of Islamic studies for 30 years. He's Algerian, very moderate Muslim, but a great scholar who's able to explain and kind of um, tell, answer serious questions about Islam, you see, which uh, it's not, it doesn't, doesn't have the kind of deep, but he has a deep understanding of the Quranic roots of all of that, which most, and, and also the nuances of Arabic and so forth. But at the same time, he's able to mediate that to a Western audience. Well, I think bringing people like this is very important. I mean, we are only a small part, but we hope to be to set a standard. And, and because of our close proximity to Congress, they can, congressmen can can come over for a meeting or a discussion, informal discussion with these people and still get back and answer a roll call vote and then come back. They can't do that anywhere else in Washington. Most of the think tank industry, and they're very excellent think tanks, Brookings, AEI, various uh, think tanks in, in Washington, but they they are further away and therefore um, once they leave, they, they can't go back. So I think we have a role to play. Anyhow, I've, I've talked perhaps more than you wanted to hear about that. But, uh, no, it's fascinating. 202 years ago, was, did this figure at all into the mission of the Library of Congress, or, or in that day was it more of simply uh, an archive and, and a library in the more standard sense of the word? 202 years ago, it was, uh, it was just a library to serve the Congress. But they wanted a library because they believed right from the beginning that legislation, so the first joint committee of the Congress was the joint committee on the Library of Congress. But if you go back earlier than that, 1774, the first meeting of the Continental Congress in Philadelphia occurred physically in a library, and they debated borrowing privileges before they got around to inventing the United <laughs> States of America. Then the first meeting of the Congress under our Constitution in New York in 1790 was also in a library. So I don't think those things are exactly accidental. Now, the early Library of Congress was very small. They sent somebody to London, he bought 170 books and four maps, came, that was the Library of Congress that the British burned in 1814 when they occupied Washington, along with burning everything else. We don't think of the British as book burners, but they had a bad patch. Of course, we had previously burned their library in Toronto, which was much larger. Um, we don't talk about that so much, so it's a sort of fair <laughs> replay. But then, then what Congress did, was to buy Jefferson's Library, which was the largest library in the Western Hemisphere at the time, nearly 7,000 books. And it had books, a quarter of them were in foreign languages. Jefferson, when he was ambassador to France, bought, he bought books in French, Italian, Latin, Greek, uh, even some, in, a couple few in Russian. So you had an international library, and that was the beginning of comprehensiveness. And then the next, then it, uh, the great builder of the library was Lincoln's second appointee, his first appointee was uh, declared sympathy for the South in the Civil War, so he was dumped. And um, they brought in a 27-year-old journalist from Cincinnati named uh, Ainsworth Spofford. And mm -hmm. Spofford really built the Library of Congress into a world library, and it's been growing ever since. And it began then to be, first of all, comprehensive, and second of all, to uh, to have a concept where it took on more and more national, national roles and responsibilities, so that it became, in effect, though never in law, the National Library of the United States. Particularly important was 1870 when the copyright uh, deposit of the United States was located in the Library of Congress, in the legislative branch. Previously, it had been in the judicial and executive branches, and nothing has survived from that period. Hmm. So it didn't preserve. 
So the main function of the Library of Congress is the, the two classic things of the libraries do, preservation and access. And um, we run the largest preservation program in the world. About half a million items are given physical preservation. And we facilitate the best access in the world by, by the cataloging system of the Library of Congress, which is used universally, pretty much. Let me ask you quickly about uh, copyright. You, you mentioned that and the fact that the, the Library of Congress has some connection to well, that. We, we, the Copyright Office is part of the Library of Congress. I wonder if you have a comment about some of the recent discussion about expansion of the copyright, which some view as, uh, in fact, uh, a curbing of the public domain, that if more and more things have longer and longer copyright life, then we have less and less material that is actually in the public domain. First of all, do you think that's an overly simplistic uh, uh, summary of the situation and, 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 uh, and whether or not you agree with it, do you, is there any potential danger there? Well, I think that's a, a reasonably fair description of what's happened. What's happened basically has been that the life of copyright protection has been gradually and increasingly extended. <clears throat> and um, part of the reason for that is because of reciprocity on the Berne Convention. When we joined the Berne Convention for perfectly good economic reasons, the United States, we had to reciprocate we wanted access to European markets. Uh, they uh, they uh, had to have the same protection they get domestically in Europe. That was part of the Bern Agreement, and therefore we had to extend our own people as long as we extended, as we were forced to extend the others. <clears throat> now that has led, unfortunately, to taking a lot of stuff out of easy access. And in addition to that, you have the question of how you extend the privileges of fair use into the internet, into the digital domain. So all these are very important problems. I, um, as uh, I have the statute, I have contradictory responsibilities because I have the statutory responsibility ultimately of enforcing the Copyright Act, however it is uh, legislated uh, by the Congress. And at the same time, uh, I have the duty, which is both a statutory one and, and, in my view, a moral duty to maximize access to knowledge. I mean, there's no point we are, which we are exercising by putting all this stuff on the net. A lot of that is, uh, most of that's public domain stuff, which we, ha which we can do, uh, but I've, we also aggressively seek to get people to give us the permission to use it, since it's basically an educational tool for the people as a whole. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I can't, uh, uh, we, we, um, uh, we have to enforce the, the law as it exists, and I have to be, I have additional responsibilities because I, I have to do the final sign-off on appeals from, from arbitration panels that are occurring all the time. There's a lot of money at stake, and there's a lot of, so I can't, uh, I mean, I'm not, I can't be really, um, uh, a, um, I have to be a, a judge more than a prosecutor in this, in this area. But I think that um, uh, things, it's very likely that we're going to have to have some new laws, that the, the problems of intellectual um, protection uh, are much harder to enforce and even to define in the digital area than they are. And I suspect there's going to be some, that there may have to be some further legislation. These are going to be very, these are very difficult, very controversial things. So determining what's fair, you've got to keep a sense of, sense of balance between the, the 
inherent value of protecting intellectual property, which is in the Article I, Section 9 of the Constitution, and the overall importance of maximizing access to material and assuring that fair use, um, which is the law, is, is extended in, a, in as generous a way as possible. I think one of the frontiers that, that we're going to have to find an answer for is how you can get something that is, how you can establish a greater educational use of materials without, in other words, that there should be some way of disseminating things in, in a way that, um, that um, uh, provides more access to more people uh, as free as possible. It's a classic problem. I mean, at the end of the 19th century, um, publishers didn't particularly like the spread of the public library system. <clears throat> they thought that, um, that uh, you know, if you could get books free in the library, they wouldn't buy it. It was completely wrong because it, it magnifies the market. And I think that more people are going to see that, um, that, um, <clears throat> that um, um, getting things out freely will, will provide, when, you, when, you, when new technology comes in, it creates, uh, for instance, um, everything we got put on the net is free. Um, uh, that's taken a lot of private money, and we haven't, uh, except for the notable exception of Hewlett and Packard, uh, both as individuals and as a company, um, there hasn't been great support for this among that industry. Now, there's been a lot of support from old line companies, phone companies, AT&T, Ameritech here, uh, Bell Atlantic, now Verizon, cable companies. A lot of people in ancillary industries were very supportive, but people have been, I think, have not sufficiently seen that by supporting free access to content, it attracts a general interest in this for educational purposes, which creates then for companies, niche markets, they can repackage the stuff. Once we put it up, it's in the public domain. So far from being um, uh, a rival, as may, many people may think, to, to commercial companies, we create new opportunities. We provide material. It's all up there. It's digitized. They can repackage it, create a niche market, create packages, and, and it, it creates new, new opportunities rather than new problems. But uh, people... Uh, you know, are, are, are slow to catch on to these possibilities, I think. <laughs> For many years you were a university professor. I wonder to what extent, if any, uh, you miss those days or miss certain things about that kind of uh, intellectual life of interaction on a regular basis with students in a classroom setting versus the, the obviously uh, uh, magnificent intellectual opportunities you have in, in this work with the Library of Congress? Well, I miss teaching. I miss interaction with students. Um, um, I, um, I get much more intellectual stimulus in this job than I ever got as a university professor. That may seem paradoxical, but um, you're dealing in Washington with people you're dealing in the open laboratory of politics and power and policy, and which has an enormous cerebral content. And you're dealing with both, at the Library of Congress, you're dealing with both the greatest supply of scholarly material in the world 
and some of the most important and interesting and intelligent uh, politicians in the world and, and leaders of various kinds. It's immensely intellectually stimulating. So just on purely intellectual grounds, I mean, I'm a scholar and a, and a teacher at heart, and I miss the teaching because the interaction with students, I, I used to teach mainly freshmen and graduate students, hmm. nothing in between, I, just because freshmen will ask open-ended, wonderful questions that challenge you at every stage. And uh, graduate students, you, you, you can, you can play with your own specialty with the graduate students. Um, but uh, the, the bureaucratization of academia is, is, is very, very um, sad, I think, uh, in the sense that, uh, and I was taught at two great universities, and I, I, I had very good, very good experiences, but the, the corporate life of universities became, as, as the amount of para-administration done in the faculty grew, uh, the, the, the usual thing people say is, well, this is competition between scholarship and teaching. I found that the competition was between kind of ridiculous para-administration, pseudo-politics, where it isn't real, and uh, psychodrama in academic, academia was really suffocating. And so I'm greatly relieved to be out of that and, and the, the kind of pettiness and narcissism of so much uh, faculty meetings, you know, endless discussions about parking privileges and things of that kind. We have that in government too, I mean bureaucracy, but, but by and large, uh, you're never going to escape bureaucracy and we have a lot of it in, in Washington. We have, but the fact of the matter is that I, I find it tremendously intellectually stimulating and also I find that um, the kinds of things I've been describing, uh, um, which are sort of innovations, that I've been able to make them. My friends who are university presidents, and uh, uh, I think maybe small colleges like Carthage here, which we're visiting, and can do more things creatively in the educational experience than the big universities can. Because the job of a university president these days is to placate the politically active part of the faculty and anesthetize the financially active part of the alumni so that they will continue to be unaware of what's actually happening in their institution and uh, will end up, uh, you know, sort of coughing up money out of most challenges. I mean, I feel sorry for my friends uh, who are running big universities because they really can't get anything done. They're, they're caretakers and fundraisers. And uh, um, uh, I've found that in what ought to be a highly political situation that the Congress has been very supportive of, of the kinds of things. I mean, we're doing these joint projects with building a virtual library with the Russians. We're running a Russian leadership program, bringing young Russian political leaders over. We're setting up this Institute for Advanced Study. We're bringing in people who's not all of whom every member of Congress is going to like their views particularly, but we're bringing in great thinkers. So, I mean, we've been able to do not a great deal, but I mean, some, some important innovation, and they've been supportive of it, and I haven't been I think the, um, you know, one of my congressmen said to me not long ago, he said, gee, your friends, he always talks about everybody from the university is my friends, and I hope some of them still are, but um, they said, your friends come in here arguing for, they bring in a lobbying firm, they hire a bunch of lawyers, and they said one of them was here the week before arguing for oil depletion allowances, and then he comes in arguing for a university, he said, well, 
why don't you send somebody with a pipe and a tweed jacket? Looks like a real, <laughs> real professor instead of sending in all these lawyers and lobbyists and hucksters. I mean, the the intellectual enterprise was important in putting this country together in the first place. It's going to be very important in sustaining it as a as a as a moral as well as a physical power in the world. And um, if it's viewed as just another special interest that is interested in nothing but money, um, uh, and that tends to be what they hear more and more of, um, we're going to be we're going to be a depleted civilization. I mean, this is the this is the infrastructure of civilization, if you'd like to use the term. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I miss teaching. That's the one thing, because I, I think you, um, and I enjoy these kind of visits with and interaction with, with uh, students. And that's, uh, but I, in a way, we're, this is kind of a little bit, there's a bit of a pedagogic function involved here and also we're dealing with um, it's I don't know there's something interesting about being a little bit connected with the world where decisions are being made I think Amer uh, I think the 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 cerebral industry in America has withdrawn from contact with the public debate and the public almost too much I mean maybe they were too involved and too too, too politically active in the 60s, but they've tended to become withdrawn to, that's why we're trying to bring people, not just the Library of Congress, but into Washington, but people who don't have political agendas, but really have deep scholarly wisdom. And ideas. And ideas. And uh, so I hope we can play a small role in that. And um, I don't want to imply that nobody else is doing it. I mean, the universities, are, there are good universities in Washington. and. Um, but there's a tremendous potential, and I think there's a tremendous hunger, too, because one of the effects of the reforms in Congress is to create so many committees, um, everybody's subcommittees and so forth, people don't have a chance to, to stop and think, because they've got, and then they have to spend so much time fundraising and meeting with lobbyists and so forth. So they're, they're really, your, your Congress would work awfully, awfully hard, and they're, they're very smart, and uh, generally everybody likes the Congress when they have, because that's, they voted for them, or at least the majority of people <laughs> voted for them, but, but there's a tendency to, to run down the institution, and the institution, I think, is a good reflection of America, and it, it needs, um, uh, and we need as a country, we need to have a, a good interaction between the enormous continuing vitality for all its weaknesses of the academic profession and the tremendous responsibilities that, that the exercises of power have in Washington. And there needs to be a deep dialogue and not, a, not just one of carping from a distance. And so that aspect, uh, as well as the sheer intellectual stimulus of, of being around a lot of bright people who are in the, who, if you're interested in the human sciences, it's good to be in the middle of the laboratory just one of the white mice with all the other white mice and the technicolor mice in the laboratory. Uh, this is the this is where history is happening, and uh, to be to 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 be close and to be occasionally um, asked, and yet not to be a, a person who's part of the process, but also not just a voyeur, is a kind of an interesting middle world. The interaction of 
affairs and ideas, if you can help do that, uh, you're making some kind of contribution. Also, I guess I have to say that, um, that to me, it's, um, you know, uh, my father never went to college, he never had an education, he never, uh, but he loved books, and uh, so it's kind of a, um, we're all, in this country, a lot of people are fulfilling the things that their parents never got a chance to do. So to me, it's uh, every day I walk in that building, I'm, I'm kind of awed and thrilled. Thank you, Dr. Billington. That was James Billington, Librarian of Congress, in a conversation recorded on the campus of Carthage College in the Hedberg Library back in 2002, during the weekend that the Hedberg Library was dedicated. James Billington served as Librarian of Congress until 2015. He passed away in 2018. I'm Gregory Berg.